We are preaching our way through the book of Acts right now and making our way progressively verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Acts. But from time to time, we're interrupting that series with another series, and that is a, a series that emphasizes some kind of cornerstones, some building blocks of biblical theology, and that is the covenants. So we've made our way from the very beginning, the Noahic covenant. We kind of did an introduction, and then we did the Noahic covenant, and then last time we considered one of the covenants, we considered the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant made with the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. And from that covenant flows several other covenants. The one that we're considering this morning is often called the Mosaic covenant because it was given at the hand of Moses to the people of Israel. And so we will be considering a passage of scripture, but it's really a big chunk of scripture. And it's in fact a passage of scripture. It's a covenant that has ripple effects that goes all throughout the entire Bible. And as we said at the very beginning, it is nearly impossible to accurately understand all of Scripture without really understanding the landscape of the covenants, because it is in many ways the structure that holds together at minimum the Old Testament, but then even flows from that the New Testament. So we are in Acts 19. We are considering the Mosaic Covenant, and I would invite you to follow along as I read Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 11, and then we will ask for God's help. This is the word of the Lord. In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel." So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. Father, as we consider this passage of Scripture, as we consider your special working amongst your chosen people, may it help us, may it teach us, may it guide us. And Lord, may we change because of the work of your Spirit through this text of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. 
Have you ever seen the little movie Matilda? It was based on a screenplay and it was based on a novel, I think, before that, back in the 80s. And there's one little scene that Matilda is confronting her father, who is a dishonest car salesman, and she's confronting him for his dishonesty. And he gets angry with her, and he says, I'm smart, and you're dumb. I'm big, and you're little. I'm right, and you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it. And of course, in that moment, you're feeling the frustration of a child who is, who is shut down by the authority figure who's wrong in this case. You're smart, or I'm smart, you're dumb, I'm big, you're little, I'm right, you're wrong. There's nothing that you can do about it. I recently had someone tell me that that's the way that little scene encapsulates how they feel about God. This person told me that it, it, they find it frustrating that, that God does not explain himself. That he just gives us commands and he just says, I'm big and you're little, you just have to obey. And I thought that was interesting and, and insightful because the fact is there are many unbelievers that feel that very way. They, they don't want to yield, they don't want to repent, they don't want to submit to the word of God because they feel bullied. They feel like this is unfair. But let's be honest, we as believers feel that way sometimes too, don't we? I mean, it's not, it's not just unbelievers who sometimes feel that way. Sometimes we, God, why don't you explain yourself? You tell me I can do this and I can't do this and, and this is off limits and, and we don't feel like we have an understanding of what God is telling us. Well, when we think that way, when our unbelieving friends and coworkers and neighbors feel that way, there's a few things that we're missing in our thinking. The first thing is that actually sometimes God does explain himself. And if we're patient enough and we exercise enough faith to really learn God's ways, we will in time see that his ways are indeed best. Some God, sometimes God does explain himself, but that doesn't fully absolve the problem, right? Because sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God doesn't rationalize for us his commandments, and the fact is, secondly, if we really understood all God's ways, he wouldn't be God anymore, right? He would just be a big version of you. I mean, what kind of a pathetic God is one that we can fully understand? But more fundamentally, when we think that way, it reflects a misunderstanding of God's very nature. You see, the very nature of God is that he is good and that he is all wise, but, but he's always loving. And what he does, he does for his glory, but also for our good. God gives his people commands for his glory and our good. And that is what the Mosaic Covenant is all about. So let's close in prayer. No, not really. <laughs> A few more things to say. <laughs> That, that really is the essence of the Mosaic Covenant. God is forging a relationship with a chosen group of people for His glory among the nations and for the good of those people. And nothing has changed. Certainly the way God 
interacts with us has changed. Certainly, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But, but the reality is that God still puts demands on His people for His glory and for our good. You have a handout, I trust. If, somebody, if you didn't get a handout, just wave down John. He probably has some. Um, because there's a lot of information here, I thought it might be good for us to take some notes. What is the purpose of this covenant? Well, there's a few purposes that we can learn about the, the Mosaic Covenant. It does something, it, it demonstrates something for man. And the first thing that it demonstrates for us is man's moral distance. Man is morally distant from God. The entire Old Testament really is designed to be a glimpse into who God is. You have your Bible open there to Exodus 19. If you go just across the page to Exodus 20, you see in verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and then follows the Ten Commandments. God's saying, this is who I am, and this is what I expect from you. But there's a problem. The problem is we don't fully meet God's expectations. So there in Exodus 20, if you go down to the end of that section that we often call the Ten Commandments, you look down at verse 18 and 19, you see the people witness the thunderings and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And what do the people do? They stood far away. <laughs> right? Can you imagine? You know, earthquakes and thunder and clouds and smoke. And people are like, yeah, I think I'm going to stand over here. This is, this is scary. This is startling to behold a God giving the law. They stood, if, if you're using the New King James, they, they stood afar off. They, they stood away. The implication is that they backed away even, even from the perimeter God had drawn a perimeter and said, don't go past this perimeter. But when they saw this, they, they backed up even further. They were afraid because their sinfulness had been exposed. And that is part of what God's law does for us. It exposes our sinfulness, our, our separation from God. Romans 3 says it this way. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. The law serves the purpose of revealing our distance from God morally. But by the deeds of the law will no flesh be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law makes us aware that we are morally distant from God. C.S. Lewis says it this way, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A more modern author has put it this way. You don't feel the pull of the stream until you try to row upstream. The law shows us how inadequate we are morally. But beyond that, it shows us that we have another need. Because we're sinful, we have a need. Look again in chapter 20 and verse 19. So they see the, the thunderings and the smoke and all of this, and they stand back. But what's their response in verse 19? Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. When we recognize our own separation from God, we recognize that we have a, a mediatorial need. That's just a big fancy way of saying we need a go-between. 
We need someone to stand in our stead. We don't just need the law to show us that we are wrong. We need a lawyer to stand in the courtroom on our behalf. And so what the law shows us is not only that we're separated from God morally, but because of that, we need a mediator. Now, of course, if you're thinking about this in the context of the New Testament, you're thinking about Jesus Christ, and we're reminded that this is the heart of the gospel, right? I mean, this is the starting point, the recognition that we are inadequate, that we are morally separated from God, and because of that, we need someone who can substitute before us, who can stand in our behalf. And of course, that one that can do that perfectly is Jesus Christ. One commentator has said it this way, if simply hearing the law was such a frightening experience, how terrifying will it be to meet God after breaking it? A good look at God's law helps us to understand that we need far more than the law. We need a lawyer. A mediator is one who goes between two parties in order to promote relationship between the two. Right? It, it, we see this in, um, in a lot of things in our society. We'll see it in, in real estate. Right? If you have a house that's listed by a realtor, you don't talk directly to the seller or to the buyer. Right? If you've got it for sale, you don't talk directly to the buyer. You talk to your realtor who then talks to maybe their realtor who then talks to <laughs> the buyer. Right? Right? They're, they're the go-between. They're the intermediary. Um, we see this in the court system with guardian ad litem, right? The, the one who stands on behalf of the one who is too young to represent himself in court. It's the, it's the mediator. It's the one who, who stands in between and represents. Well, Hebrews 8 calls Christ a mediator of, watch this now, a better covenant. So the law shows us that we have a need. We're separated from God, and the need that we have really ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So even the Mosaic law points to Jesus, who is the Savior. Romans 5, Paul explains it this way under inspiration, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And so the law shows us our moral distance, it shows us our mediatorial need, but then it also shows us something else. It shows us abundant life. The law is designed to show man the abundant life in God. There are blessings that come as God's moral law is yielded to. You see, what God is doing here, we read it in our initial reading in chapter 19, right? What does he say he's doing there in verses 3 and 4 and 5? He's, I am making you a special people. And in verse 6, he actually goes so far as to call them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We think of, of the Mosaic law as this covenant as something that is restrictive upon the people, but, but what God is doing here is, is giving them an opportunity for abundant life by setting them apart from all the peoples of the earth, making them His special chosen people that will be in covenant, that will be in relationship with Him through this law. 
And this is a blessing. As God sets apart His people, within that are special rewards. So we read for our call to worship from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the, the second law. So this is the re-giving of the law. This is the reiteration of the law before the people go into the land of Egypt. And what does he say? I'm giving you an option. Life or death. Blessing or cursing. Good or evil. Choose life. Choose good. Choose right. I mean, this is, this is the... This is the bifurcation that is set up there as the people are given the law. That's what the covenant is. Now, remember in our introduction to the covenants, we talked about the fact that there were, there were conditional covenants and there were unconditional covenants. The Mosaic law is by far the most conditional of all the covenants. It's repeated over and over again. If you do this, God will bless you in this way. If you do not do this, you will see calamity and cursing and trouble. So stay faithful to the covenant. And did you notice here in chapter 19, the people said, all that God said we will do. I mean, they entered into this joyfully. And it's when they departed from that covenant, when they departed from their commitment again and again and again throughout. I mean, just follow this through the entire Old Testament, right? I mean, this is what the prophets are doing. They're indicting. They're like, they're like a prosecuting attorney that says, hey, here's the covenant. You're not keeping it. God's doing exactly what he said he would do when you fail to keep the covenant. But when you repent, when you come back, God will again bless you. This is a highly conditional covenant. Now, I want to remind us of something that we touched on. Um, because it's important in this context. I want to remind us of something we touched on when we, we touched on the Abrahamic covenant, right? We talked about this kind of tension that we have in our thinking. Uh, we, we sometimes slip into this legalistic thinking that, well, I've somehow earned God's blessing. Understand that the Mosaic covenant and, and the blessings that God gives us are all a function of His grace. We can't say we earned them. We can't say that, that, that we somehow curry God's favor because we were good, that's, that's legalism. That's, that's the wrong thinking. You say, but, but wait a minute. I see in Scripture again and again and again that, that blessing is connected to obedience, right? And in fact, that, I mean, you have to be honest with Scripture that that theme is very much there. So how do we think about those? Remember, remember last time I gave this illustration and I said, my kids may not deserve ice cream, but if I tell them, go get in the car, and they obey, they put themselves in the place of blessing. Remember that illustration? My kids remember that illustration, right? So it is with obedience. We don't necessarily earn God's blessing. We don't deserve God's blessing. We forfeited that the first time we sinned and in all our times of rebellion. But the fact is that when we obey, we put ourselves in the place of blessing. And in fact, God longs to bless His people. And He will often bless them through the means of His commands. Do you think about God's commands as a blessing? Or do we, do we think about them as restrictions? Do we think about His commands and obedience to His commands as an opportunity for greater blessing? That's God's point of view. 
We think about them in terms of, oh God, you're keeping me from blessing. Not at all. God actually blesses his people through his commands. God gives his people commands for his glory and our good. So we see that this is an opportunity for his people for abundant life. This is the way the psalmists, all, over and over again, the psalmists speak about God's law. You know Psalm 1, Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of the scornful. But what? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. We read Deuteronomy 30. This is an opportunity for blessing, God says. To obey my law is an opportunity for rich blessing. So our blessings are not deserved, but obedience puts us in the place of greater blessing. In Psalm 119, four times, the psalmist says, Your law is my delight. But there is something that we need to understand. So the law shows us our moral distance. It shows us our mediatorial need. It, it gives us an opportunity for abundant life. All of these things were true of God's people in, in a specific context, in the Mosaic context, but it's true for us again today. But it is not for justification. The law does not justify. The law does not cleanse from sin. We saw Romans 3 a minute ago, verse 20 says, By the deeds of the law will no flesh be justified in his sight. Paul argues the case in Galatians. I mean, if you want, you want an entire commentary on an accurate understanding of the law, the book of Galatians would be that. And Paul argues in Galatians 2, verse 16, Note flatly that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even as we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. The law does not provide forgiveness. It does not provide that that mediator that is needed. It shows us that need. It points us to Christ, but it does not provide the one who stands in our behalf in Jesus Christ. And so the law, the Mosaic Covenant, serves a, a key role in our understanding biblical theology. It shows us that we have a need. We are separated from God. And as we are separated from God, we need someone who will fill in our place, who will, who will set us in right standing before God. As we consider this passage of Scripture, I think it's important for us to think about how the Mosaic Covenant applies to us. Now, we're probably going to take in a couple weeks um, another opportunity to, to delve more into the law. But what I want us to understand is God has given His chosen people Israel a, a specific time in a specific place in a specific context demands 
commands that they must keep, that they, may, they must abide by. And in so doing, in, in keeping that covenant, they will be blessed. Well, God does the same for us. We're in a different context. We're in a different time. We're in a different era of God's working. But God still puts demands on His people, does He not? God still tells us there are things that we must do and things that we must not do. And in through all of those things, God gives us opportunity for blessing. Not blessing that we deserve, not blessing that we somehow earn because we've done the things that He told us to, but He gives us an opportunity for blessing as we yield to Him, as we obey Him, and we trust in Him. So we sang the little children's song together, right? Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. So I ask us again this morning, how do we think about God's commands? Do we think about God's commands as restrictions, as that which prevents us from doing what we want to do, as that which blocks us from greater joy, greater happiness, greater blessing? Or do we realize this morning that what God calls us to actually is greater blessing? Perhaps there's someone here this morning or someone who is watching us by internet who, who you've wrestled with the claims of Christ. You've thought about, about yielding to Him, repenting of your sin and depending on Jesus Christ. Someone has presented to you the good news of Jesus Christ and you're still saying, how is that good news? How is that good news for me to have to forsake my sin? For, for me to have to, to deny the very essence of who I feel like I am for God. May I just say to you, God is rich in blessing. God is full of mercy. He is loving. And when He calls us to repentance, when He calls us to turn from our way to His way, it is not to restrict us from blessing. It is so that He might embrace us with greater blessing. And as we walk with Him each day, as we grow in our knowledge of Him and our obedience to Him, the blessings continue to grow. And so, for some, the command is repent and believe. Yield to the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've never depended on Jesus Christ as your personal Savior for forgiveness of sin and for right relationship with Him, today can be the day that you realize that the command to obey the gospel, to believe the gospel, is a command for His glory and for your good. And for my Christian friend this morning, what about your obedience? Do you resist in some area of life? Do you hold back from Him thinking that God is, is keeping you from blessing? May we realize this morning that God gives His people commands for His glory and our good. Father, we thank You for our time together. And in these moments, we pray that you have turned our heart to an understanding of your goodness. As we think together about the, the covenant of Moses, I pray that you would use it even to teach us about our own right response to the commands that you give us.